Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, you'll first be hearing an interview with John Caritas, executive producer of Radio Free Acton, and Mark Mills, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. They'll be talking about Mark's new book, Work in the Age of Robots, about what our jobs and the future of AI might look like. Then on Upstream, where we talk all things culture, host Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Jay Nordlinger, the senior editor of National Review about classical music. Are people still listening to classical music these days, and why is it important? As always, if you want to check out any books or articles mentioned in the episode, you can find them linked in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Ripped from today's headlines, killer robots poised for mass production as campaigners urge AI to be made illegal. Welcome, I'm your host at Radio Free Acton, John Caritas, and today we're talking about robots, artificial intelligence, technology, and our guest today is Mark P. Mills, who is the author of a new book from Encounter Books titled Work in the Age of Robots. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me on. You know, I've really been looking forward to this conversation uh, in part because I've uh, been worn out by the sort of headline I read at the top. Um, all of the hype and overheated discussion we're getting today about artificial intelligence, automation, robots taking our jobs. In fact, robots uh, actually are running our lives. More headlines. Artificial intelligence and jobs. What's left for humanity will require uniquely human skills. Robots are already taking human jobs, but it may not be such a bad thing. All right, well, that's a little more positive. Uh, Another (laughs) one, why we should think twice before letting robots take over. Now, you know, part of this is silly, and part of it is because I understand how it works. You know, these writers, especially in the tech press, are are, um, trying to grab some eyeballs. But what I really enjoyed about your book, and it's a, distillation of both economic and technology common sense about uh, what we're going through today. Um, Talk a little bit about previous phases we've gone through, industrial development in this country. You mentioned farming as one, the early uh, era of automobile production, and how we transitioned and how... um, we had all these fears, but we wound up seeing something remarkable in terms of greater productivity and greater wealth. Now, it's you know, forecasting uh, technology is kind of a uh, it's kind of a fun thing because everybody participates in it. It's uh, it's a little bit like you say, you know, as the as the the wags say in the pundit world that uh, everybody has an opinion about um, sex, politics, and money because everybody has personal experiences with it. So right. <laughs> and right. sort of, technology sort of falls in the same category because we all, we're all, we all interact with technology in the sense of um, not only how we live at work, but how we live at home. And that's always been the case. I mean, it, the idea that we're in a unique time is both right and wrong. I mean, it's uh, maybe unsurprisingly. There is something going on. I'm, I'm writing another book about what the something is. People, I think, correctly sense that there's a structural shift in the nature of the technologies that sort of animate our society, and uh, and there's a lot of excitement in some quarters, you know, from, especially in Silicon Valley, 
and there's a lot of anxiety in other places, and then there's a lot of just silliness in people. People tend to say things that are silly because they don't understand the nature of the change, and this is, as you say, not the first time we've We've experienced this. You know, I've made an analogy I didn't put in, the, in my little short my short book is that and maybe it's a mistake. It's the more interesting analog is the dawn of nuclear fission, the nuclear energy, where people, of course, uh, were worried about the nu- nuclear weapons. But the positive side of nuclear energy engendered all sorts of just goofy forecasts right. about Right. Literally atomic-powered airplanes, atomic-powered cars. Electricity would be too cheap to meter. Right. Remember that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That was uh, 1958, uh, Louis Strauss, the first chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, who didn't just say it once. He said it several times. So, And what happened? Well, nuclear power plants got built, right? And they ended up providing about 10% of the world's electricity, which is not nothing. But And nuclear weapons are, of course, a very frightening uh, very frightening devices, but they they didn't change the world in quite the way the hyperbole had it in the 1950s and 60s. So the age of robots and automation, by that I mean the physical robots that, you know, um, that are sort of science fiction fame, the anthropomorphic machines like C-3PO in Star Wars, or virtual robots, which we are calling artificial intelligence, and that's things like Siri and, you know, uh, Alexa, you know, the interactions we can have by just talking to computers. These are, these are things that are really quite remarkable and very different than, than anything that's been around in recent years and causing a lot of anxiety. Um, and I think maybe to be cynical, the anxiety that's emerging is coming from the chattering classes because for the first time, technology is possibly and really impacting their jobs. They weren't very much worried when Robots took away manufacturing jobs. They certainly weren't worried when they took farming jobs away and automation did that. But now that you know, journalists' jobs are at risk, or advertising agents' jobs, or her lawyers' jobs are at risk. Now, now we face an existential threat to the world, apparently, because it's their jobs this time. These are the people that write the stories, that write the news. So I'm, I think some of that comes, and I'm being only half cynical, half serious, it comes from that kind of anxiety. So it's animated by the fact that we're in a, in a structural change in our economy that's very real. But it, in fact, will go a little slower than people think. Now that's, I mean, that's made my bottom line is that there are big things happening. I think they're net very positive things as I lay out in my book. But I also, as I try to articulate in the book, these things, they don't happen at the speed of an app and an iPhone. The idea that technology is accelerating its pace of change, I think, is fundamentally wrong. Yeah, you know, you uh, talk about Amara's Law which uh, states that forecasters tend to overestimate technological change in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. Well, think about the car, right? The, 19, the, the Model T moment, 1918, we finally had a mass-produced car. Uh, the point in time at which we went from 0.2% of people having a car to 10 or 20% was another 20 years. And to have everybody having a car, so to speak, took another 30 years. And the 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 the, the value of a car is self-evidently profoundly better than anything anybody had before. Very much like the value of a smartphone and what it can do for people is very much different than anything you've ever had before. But the trajectory of the of the change, the, so the inflections take they take far longer than people realize in the short term. But once they're in play, the structural changes in a society are generally different than people could anticipate and and deeper. 
I mean, look how the car changed the world. I mean, it really did change the world. Profound no changes. Really yeah, it, it literally oh, yeah. changed the landscape of America and our cities. But, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now, if you go, if you go back and read, which I which I do as a sort of an amateur historian, what people forecast, what did they say in 1900, 1910, 1920, about what the car was going to do, and almost pretty much nobody got it right. No one, no one could figure out what it which how it transformed society. I had a sense it was a big deal, uh, and that's true of the aircraft, by the way. It's also true of, of electricity. And there aren't very many things that, that have that kind of depth and reach. The question would be what. If, what would the change be for our economy? And one of the things that people are saying is, well, it means the end of work, right? Auto, autom automatic machines, robots are just automatic machines, and artificial intelligence will eliminate work because they take labor hours out. This is just, a, 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 I think, fundamentally uh, intellectually shallow, but it's even a silly proposition because we've been trying to eliminate labor hours in services and work of manufacturing things for all of human history. It's what it's what you want to do. That's the goal. That's how you get right, wealth. That's right. how we get leisure. That's how we get safety and comfort. It's how we get literally. It's how we get beauty and all the things that we want. The Greeks wrote about this. I mean, they, they Aristotle, yeah, you know, wrote about how you you could have pursuit of, of art was made possible by by productivity. He didn't use the word productivity, but but he meant that the wealth is what gave you that leisure. Yeah, you you draw a good. Um... An example in the auto industry, and a lot of the automation that has gone into industry has, has replaced what were more or less blacksmith-type jobs, dirty, monotonous, dangerous, and a lot of these has been have been automated away. Thank you very much. But that's an industry that has um, adopted a huge amount of technology, both in production and in the product itself, and it continues to expand and it continues to go to new levels, um, safer, faster, more features, more durable. Um, I'm not seeing a downside there. Exactly. And, you know, you, you pick a, an excellent example. You have some, you have some experience in it. The, in the auto industry, in fact, is the industrial sector that has the highest penetration of robots and automation of any industrial sector. No, no other sector has been as effective at adopting and, uh, robots and automation, and the largest single number of robots in the world are in auto factories around the world. So that's that that industry has been the first and fastest, and they still have a long way to go to get to the level of automation a lot of people imagine is possible. And the jobs, in fact, the jobs began to disappear in terms of the number of people needed to manufacture a car um, in 1918. If we trace back the history, yeah. probably we've been trying to automate the damn thing yeah. for a very long right. time. And the acceleration of what we call modern automation began in the 60s, and, and President Kennedy gave a speech to Congress, and he worried specifically about automation taking away auto industry jobs and created in the Department of Labor a Department of Automation and, and, and Jobs to study and try to deal with the loss of work in the auto sector, even as, and as everybody knows, that was the golden age of the U.S. auto industry, expanding rapidly, but the absolute number of employees was not going up at the same rate, in fact, even declining in many companies because of robots, automation. In 1962, 1963, four, and so forth, so we're doing it again, Yeah. and will it mean no work for anybody? No, it'll just mean different jobs. Uh, let's talk a little bit about services. Um, you 
point to service-related activities are more fundamentally more information-centric than hardware-centric, although, as we've just said, hardware has a lot in it, embedded. And you say they're more amenable to rapid adoption of knowledge automation. That may explain why uh, we're getting a lot of stories that are mostly focused on Silicon Valley and how software works, the cloud, artificial intelligence, and less about how the rest of the economy is using um, some of these this automation and AI. But sure. you, you talked about Alexa and Google's voice. People are actually having these things in their homes now. Do you think that'll accelerate the inflection point, the adoption of these technologies? Do you see any misgivings by consumers? Well, the, the short answer to your last point, there clearly are misgivings. Right? There's, people are conflicted. They they are adopting and using these technologies. So that means they like them. I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy test here. If people dislike them so much and they were not useful, there'd be no market and they wouldn't exist. Correct. They'd just go away. Yes. Good point. So in, in our economy, we're not, we're not Soviet empire where you can force people to do some things. You can't force anybody to do anything useful in America, which I guess is good. But the, so that that tells you that the anxieties that people have, and they're reasonable anxieties about you know security, privacy, use of their information, uh, are offset rationally by people liking the utility, the value. Computers be- start to become useful when they disappear into the background. So I, my next book really is about this it, this idea of uh, computing that's truly useful. It becomes ambient. It's like if cars when they first were made were not useful, you had to be practically a mechanic to drive one. Now, now anybody can be taught to drive a car. It's not that hard, and they're very, very safe. Uh, computers are still not very useful because it's too hard to, you know, upgrade things and fix your app. And you know, everybody has to joke about the, their nephew, their son, or somebody in their orbit that can help them get their computer or smartphone to work right. We'll have arrived at an age when computers are truly useful when you they, you can talk to the computer and it can talk back to you in a way that you find intuitively useful, comfortable. Uh, that's what. Alexa and Siri voice, he's whatever we're shooting for. Shouldn't have to have a keyboard all the time or a screen. And the screen should not have to, do I have to carry it around? Maybe it's just a peer when I need it. These are, saying those things sound sort of crazy. Well, saying I could have a computer in my pocket 30, 30 years ago sounds sort of nutty. So those are the things that are starting to come. Uh, it will be make computing profoundly useful for both services and manufacturing, especially for services. And, and yes, it'll bring um, along with us some anxieties until we figure out how to structure both the business and technical features of these things so that I'm assured of my privacy and security. People will want that. That's solvable technically. It's not, it's not that it's not solvable. It just has a, it has a cost, right? People have to want it enough to pay for it because these things are, are not solvable by declaration. I like to have my security and privacy. It's kind of like saying I have a house, but I don't want to. I don't want to pay for the money to have a door and a lock. Well, if you want to to have privacy, you have to buy curtains and buy a door and a lock. Um, Adding privacy and security into the virtual world has costs. Uh, They'll get cheaper and get easier, and people will demand them, which I think is already happening. That will accelerate, to your point on the tipping point, the, the utility, if you like, the value of these tools, and they'll get used more and more. But they come first and fastest in the information area just simply because it's easy to manipulate information with computers. It's very difficult to manipulate physical things with computers, right? whether it's driving a car or carrying a brick. So I, you know, I think I, I use this line in the book. I've written it before that 
technically far easier to automate the job of a junior attorney than a journeyman electrician. And because of that, it happens there first. So a lot of legal jobs have been automated by artificial intelligence. If you want to build a house and ha have it wired, you're going to be hiring an electrician. Yeah, someone who has know-how know and hands-on yeah. and can manipulate the physical exactly. environment. And um, exactly. this is exactly why uh, you're seeing uh, a lot of uh, questions being raised about driverless vehicles. It's not simply, as it may be viewed in Silicon Valley, a software problem. It's a uh, personal safety. It's a mobility. It's a privacy problem. You actually have a human being inside your product, the driverless vehicle, unlike a smartphone. It's a completely different world, and I think it's uh, starting to dawn on some people that uh, it's time to uh, pump the brakes on, on that sort of technology. Yeah, well, it's good. It's going to get popped. The brakes are going to get. There may even be a, a full reversal as opposed to brakes being pumped, given the both the hyperbole and the danger of, of behaving the way a lot of Silicon Valley are today. You're exactly right. You know, a crash with your computer is inconvenient. A crash in a physical car involves human beings. And so we, we demand levels of reliability uh, that are profoundly different and levels of security that are profoundly different when it involves life and limb. And this is, this is a very difficult domain in a technical sense, not just a psychological sense. And we aren't there yet. These, these, um, the idea that self-driving cars are around the corner is, is uh, technologically silly. It's absurd. They will come. Yeah. They're come. It's, 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 many, it's many, many, many years away. Let me uh, close now. We're running a little short of time um, with uh, your conclusion uh, in this book. We live in a time of great cultural shift, not just a technological one. We shall yet see how today's tech leaders choose to manage the employment and social fallout they're beginning to cause to the minority as they acquire greater wealth for themselves and their employees. And I think that is a really good point. Um, the social side of this massive technological shift should not be uh, underestimated or ignored. So thanks for uh, yeah, pointing us in that direction in your conclusion. To me, that's the single most important feature of this that's not being addressed in, the, in a constructive way, either by the alarmists who are being alarmed about the wrong things yeah. or about the progenitors who are creating the disruption, which is net good for the, for the world and for our, our economy. But there are losers. When there's transformations, there are losers. And we have a moral obligation as a society to deal with the people who are on the losing end of these transformations. There are people who will lose jobs. There will be net more jobs. But there will be people who will lose jobs who can't get the next job, who can't get trained for whatever reason. And that somehow... Uh, I hope we'll deal with the transition this time better than we did with the last Industrial Revolution. Yeah, that needs to be meaningful and real with some concrete solutions. Okay. Okay, Mark, thank you. I've been talking to Mark P. Mills, author of Work in the Age of Robots, available from Encounter Books, Amazon, and other fine booksellers. Highly recommended. Thank you, Mark, for coming on Radio Free Act today. Thanks for having me on. It's great to talk. You see it in everything, from political rhetoric to Hollywood films. Business is the bad guy. But is this really true? From the smallest mom-and-pop shop to the largest e-commerce storefronts, businesses are an essential pillar to a free and flourishing society. In an upcoming one-day conference on October 18, 
Acton is pleased to bring together entrepreneurs and business leaders to explore the moral good that business does. Through panel discussions, interviews, and a luncheon, we'll look at topics such as the theological underpinnings of work, the meaning and dignity of work, the role of the entrepreneur, and more. Register today at actin.org events to join us in Grand Rapids for Business Matters, meaningful work in the modern age. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Upstream. This week we're going to be talking with Jay Nordlinger, who is a well-known writer from National Review and New Criterion, and we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to Jay's heart, as well as my own, and that is classical music, whether it's passé, a dying art, or if uh, it needs to reduce the numbers of individuals who listen to it in order for it to actually survive. So, hello, Jay. How are you today? Fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being here. We really appreciate it, and we are honored to have you as our guest. Let's look a little bit at uh, the numbers for classical music. According to uh, numbers from 2016, the NEA says that 8.8% of Americans attended classical music performances in the past 12 months, which is down from 11.6% a decade prior. Uh, is that significant? Is it important? Does anybody really care? I mean, it, does it really matter whether uh, we have majority of individuals who have to go to classical musical performances? Well, did you say 8.8%? Yes, sir. I, gu I guess my first reaction is that's better than 8.7. <laughs> yeah, compared to what? Yeah, right. Well, there are lots of concerts available. There's YouTube. You can listen to anything. I think the concert-going experience is generally an excellent one. I just hope that people are exposed to classical music, uh, that they know it exists so they can accept it or reject it. It's a little like you know, how we do with kids. We offer them food, a variety of foods, and we say, take a no-thank-you helping, right? Or try a little. If you don't like it, as an adult, you don't have to eat it, right? I guess what I ask of America, of the world, is that um, – it, it, is that it let young people listen to these things just so they know they exist to take or leave. One of the things that um, um, I read in a, an essay by Charles Albright, he writes that uh, one of the, the things that have changed about classical music right now is that the the audiences expect something different. And I know that uh, you come from a more conservative background, even though uh, uh, you acknowledge and confess the mea culpa of growing up in the Ann Arbor area, uh, a very liberal part of Michigan and the Midwest, that uh, the decorum of the concert-going experience is beginning to shift where it's not people sitting and, you know, not coughing, not talking. The performers from the stage never turn around to address the audience. They don't speak to the audience and things like that. I mean, is that something that you would agree with? Well, concert life is not for everybody. I, I love sitting in a concert hall or opera house and, and watching and listening. And I think music is a very powerful form of communication I think it's usually better and higher than speech. I don't think there needs to be a lot of talking from the stage. And so it's just thrilling for a lot of us to sit and listen to music at a really good concert. But I must concede it's not for everybody. And I often say about popular music, there's a reason they call it pop music. You know, it's popular. A classical music has never been popular. 
but it's always been loved and cherished and perpetuated by a minority, and I believe it always will be. Why is that? I mean, if you could elaborate on that, why, why is classical music so important? Well, it's important to those of us who love it. I guess importance is, is in the eye of the individual. A lot of us wouldn't like to live without music, and a lot of us could take it or leave it. It's really individual choice. I think that music is an enriching of life, enriching of the soul. I think it gives you a better life, a better human experience. Uh, but that's me. And I guess one of the reasons I'm a conservative is that I don't expect everyone to conform to me and my tastes. That's very hard for a lot of people to accept. Very hard. Well, that, that's a very good point. I mean, you know, Russell Kirk spoke about the true meaning of conservatism is to be a rejection of all ideologies. So uh, I, I think that uh, you're you're right on the mark with that comment. But let's uh, switch over to uh, we discussed before uh, we we began recording an essay in The Economist that. I think is very wonderful. Uh, it says that uh, the, the important part of music, good music, truly good music, music that stands the test of time, and I think we can both agree that most classical music does that if it's well-performed and, and uh, well-reimagined, that uh, the best of it reaffirms Western culture and, and values, that it's, it serves as a symbol that, that transcends nationalities and borders. Mm. Yeah, that, 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 that is so true. Uh, Western music, it may have been written in the West, but it really is universal. Uh, it's universal art. Uh, I was just thinking, I was writing this the other day because there was a South Korean classical guitarist who goes by one name, Gigi, J-I-J-I. She gave a recital here in New York, and she opened with a very famous piece, Spanish piece called Asturias by Albanese which is really a piano piece that was transcribed for the guitar, I think by or for Segovia, I can't remember. But here's this South Korean girl playing this Spanish music like she owns it. And she does. She really does. And so do we all. Uh, and uh, you make me think about, about universality that... Um, when there's something sent off into space and there are little mementos of things from Earth... And one of the things this thing, this thing that was transported, I don't know what to call it, contained was a recording of Glenn Gould, the late Canadian pianist, playing some of the Goldberg variations of Bach. That's a wonderful thing to send out into outer space if you want to tell beings out there, hey, this is the best of us. This is what we as human beings are capable of. I, I, I think I could not agree more. Well, you know, to turn back to the economist essay, uh, the author writes that Ode to Joy is probably one of the most significant celebrations of humanity and Western values, that, it, that uh, he or she says that Ode to Joy should be used a, to spearhead a cultural retort to, say, the Islamic State, that the piece is able to encapsulate Western values, culture, and identity for a simple reason— its popularity shows that the West has arguably chosen it to symbolize its society. Yes, I believe it's the anthem of the European Union, which, of course, conservatives are split on. Um, the music is great, of course, and, and, and so is the Schiller poem that the music sets. It's a hymn, an ode to not just to joy, but to brotherhood and to the commonality of human beings. Uh, 
And I think that's why so many people take it to heart. It's certainly not for ISIS, no. It's not for a lot of nationalists and extremists and tribalists. Uh, there's also a religious element to it, you know? Uh, men and women as children of God, as made by one creator. And so this is a hymn, an ode, a piece that speaks to a great many people and always will. Of course, the music doesn't hurt, does it? Oh, not at all. And I, I think those are, are, are wonderful points. It, it, it recalls the uh, scene in Casablanca where the, the Nazis are singing their, their ridiculous song to uh, the fatherland and the patrons stand up and respond with a bone-chilling, wonderful version of La Marseillaise. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Just terrific. It's uh, That movie is a classic for a reason. Yes, it is. So let, let's turn a little bit from that to uh, the, your uh, piece in the Smithsonian Second Opinion where you were interviewed on uh, what does it mean for art to be relevant. And I, I, I love reading this, and you've also written about this in National Review, and I, I think it's a, a wonderful perspective that you bring to this whole ridiculous question of I like it, but it's just not relevant. And 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 it, 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 explain your your rationalization here. Well, I'm really not sure what people mean by relevant. Uh, relevant to what? If they don't like it, that's one thing. So I guess a piece of music may not be relevant to them, but uh, I'm not entirely sure what relevant means. Uh, what's the relevance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. What's the relevance of a Chopin nocturne? I don't know. It's music. Yeah, I, I, I can't really participate in the debate because I, I don't quite understand the terms. Uh, I th what people may mean is that when they say something is not relevant is that it's not political, which is fine for me. I think all politics and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And, and I think uh, you touched on this subject at the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about great art as universal. What Eliot would call the objective correlative does not always necessarily, necessarily relate to the political uh, horizons of that particular time that it was written or performed in. Mm. Well, you, may, you surely know more about Eliot than I do, but I'll, I'll have to look that up. <laughs> but but um, classical music that is really uh, uh, any music, including popular music of an elevated kind, lasts. Think of all those Gershwin songs, for example, or Jerome Kern songs, or Harold Arlen songs, or the, the Beatles, some of those songs. Um, this, it really doesn't matter when the thing was written or first performed uh, or where it was performed, what country it comes from. Uh, really, music is made by individuals, mainly, rather than countries or societies, right? Yeah. And if, it, if it's good, I think it speaks to the human mind and heart in, in every era and in whatever place, right? Uh, these things are timeless. Uh, now, of course, most classical music, like most popular music, fades, is ephemeral. But the really good stuff lasts. It's just a matter of chaff and wheat. If you have a, you know, sometimes composers are described as one-hit wonders. I'm trying to think of one now. I, I, nothing leaps to mind. Well, gosh, it's better to have one hit than none, you know? Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely. And one of the things, you know, we were discussing Ode to Joy, which uh, is one of the most immediately recognizable pieces of music to all humanity, is that it also speaks to something that makes it even more, much more of a universality, is that it deals with what uh, conservatives consider to be the enduring moral order. That is right. That is right. Uh, now, of course, there are many, many different types of classical music. Uh, some of it is uh, morally ordering, if you will, and some of it is discombobulating. Uh, um, there, there's a great variety to choose from. Uh, there is, for example, a perfectly balanced Lutheran Bach cantata, which I adore. But the Rite of Spring by the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky is something else, right? Uh, not to mention much other atonal music. Um, so the, 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 the ponds of classical music are more like oceans, and you can just dive in and look around and enjoy it all or simply take what you like. Terrific. Jay Nordlinger, thank you so much for spending the time talking to us today. I do appreciate all of your insights into classical music. You're, you're a terrific writer, extremely insightful, and uh, I'm always eager to pick up anything that you've written, especially that regarding music and uh, also that regarding the use of language. So I, I do appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you today. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with a fellow Michigander, and uh, I love the Acton Institute and consider it, as Bush 41 would say, a point of light. Oh, well, thank you so much, sir. And for Upstream, I'd like to thank my producer, Caroline Roberts, and my executive producer, John Caritas. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. To reach our podcast team here at Acton, you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.